So tonight's lesson is titled, uh, Choose Your Own Adventure, and it's perhaps one of my favorite. Choose Your Own Adventure, uh, as a title, is borrowed from a type of children's literature that was extraordinarily popular in the 1970s and 80s. Curious if anybody's familiar with it. One, two, three, four, five, yeah. Choose Your Own Adventure is um, the third most popular um, children's series in terms of sales. Um, only the Harry Potter, which who can compete with Harry Potter, and Goosebumps uh, was number two, and then the Choose Your Own Adventure is number three. There were a lot of novels, I'm not even exactly sure how many, that were produced uh, from the years 1979 to 1999. They were short little novels um, made for younger children, really, or um, that kind of invited them into the reading process. A couple of things that mark them. Um, one of them, um, they were written in the second person so that as you read them, it was as though you were the protagonist of the story. You were going here and meeting this professor or going there and meeting that detective or going somewhere else and meeting another character in the story. And um, another very uh, interesting part of it is that you wouldn't read them straight through, kind of beginning to end, but there were some um, opportunities to make choices. So, for example, in The Lost Jewels of Nabudi, the first uh, set of choices pose the following options. If you agree to go on tomorrow's plane for Paris, turn to page four. If you demand more time, information, and extra help, turn to page seven. And so you would make these decisions. Uh, and then as you turn to these different pages, different things would happen. So sometimes things would turn out badly, like you'd end up dying and, and you could like, you know, come back and make a different choice and something else would happen. Sometimes you would get stuck in a loop where it just kind of loop, loop you back, like you go back to page 13 and you go back to page 13. And so you'd have to go further back to take a different choice to get to avoid the loop. There's often kind of alternative endings to the story. Um, I loved them. I thought they were great. I still think they're great, really. There's a number of ways in which I think reading... Um, the book of Revelation uh, could be seen, or we could use some of the same reading strategies from Choose Your Own Adventure when we read the book of Revelation. And I'd like to highlight uh, some of those uh, for us tonight. Um, the first is that whole idea of second point, second person point of view. So when you read scripture, I suspect that you read it with a certain kind of participatory hermeneutic, that is, you don't just read it as a history book, or you don't even read it just as a religious book. You read it as though it was written for you. Like it wasn't just written for someone else, but of the people that scripture was written for, it includes us. And so we read it like it's written to us and for us. Um, and when we see things prescribed, we try and follow them. Uh, we, we see things described, we try and mimic them. Um, often. And so this certainly happens a, a few times um, in Scripture and, and also in the book of Revelation. There's one kind of explicit place 
where there's a narrative being told in Scripture and the fourth wall is broken, um, where it's not just the, the narrator and the characters in the story, but the narrator kind of speaks to the reader. In Mark chapter 13, verse 14, it says, let the reader beware, <laughs> you know, let the reader understand. Um, it's those times like if you're watching a TV show or a movie where the character kind of turns and looks directly into the camera and talks to you, kind of breaking that idea that, that you're just a um, spectator, but that rather kind of pulling you in to be a participant. And in Revelation, uh, we don't get that exactly, but we get something close a couple of times. In chapter 13, verse 18, it says this, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person, and that number is 666. Of course, we've talked about that idea a few nights ago, or a few weeks ago. But you get this idea that um, it's speaking to the reader. It's kind of acknowledging your existence and calling on you to participate. <coughs> Something similar happens at the end of the book where we get this kind of list of imperatives. Uh, chapter 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who is thirsty come. And let him who desires the waters of life without price. So, I mean, those first two... The, the prayer of the Spirit and the church seem to be directed to Jesus to come. But those last two are kind of directed toward the readers. Like, if you want to participate in this, if, if you've heard this message and you think it's for you, then you too should come. You should come and participate. Are you thirsty? You know, do, do you want the water of life? And, and hopefully that kind of is, is generated uh, partially in you. So they have that second, uh, second person feel to how we read scripture, especially when we're reading it devotionally. Next is the phenomenon of a nonlinear reading experience. So the nonlinear narrative format of a choose your own adventure um, uh, works like this. So in the first page of a choose your own adventure, you often get um, reading instructions. So we don't get reading instructions with Scripture. There's no part of Scripture that says, okay, this is how you read um, the Psalms. This is how you read the parables of Jesus. Uh, this is how you read the letters of Paul. They're just there. And we have to kind of learn or we guess, well, how do you read this type of literature? So there, there's these instructions. So this, this also comes from the Lost Jewels of Nabuti. It says, do not read this book straight through from beginning to end. Exclamation point. These uh, pages contain many different adventures in, in your search. From time to time, as you read along, you will be asked to make a choice. Your choice may lead to success or failure. Remember, think carefully before you make a move. Danger lurks at every turn. So it'd be nice if uh, we had some instructions on how to read the book of Revelation, I think. Um, it doesn't come with some. I've often thought about writing a few and kind of inserting it, um, like in like a study Bible format, but um, you know, just kind of putting in, in a, like a dialogue box in, in the translation, okay, this next section needs to be read with this bit over here, not this bit over there. 
Because if you start with Revelation and you read it straight through, um, I, th I think you could easily get confused um, if you don't know kind of what pieces go where. Um, because there's a lot of flashbacks and there's a lot of foreshadowings. Like how's, how's the story going to end? Well, we're told in chapter 7 that they all stand before the throne and before the Lamb. Every, this great multitude, more than anybody can count, from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Wow, that sounds like the end of the story. And that is how the story eventually ends. So why are we being told that all the way in chapter 7? We get another glimpse at the end, at the end of chapter 11. It says, the kingdom of uh, God and his Christ has become the kingdom of the world. You know, heaven has come to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the prayer is being answered. And we give, and the 24 elders give thanks and praise the Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, for he has taken his great power and he's begun to reign. Now, if that's not a picture of the end, and it says the wicked are judged, the righteous are rewarded. And then there's this little fanfare. There's like a, a musical prelude, fade to black. I mean, run the credits. That's the end of the story, right? Except we're only halfway through. We get the end of the story again in chapter 16. Same fanfare gets played again. It's like, um, like you know when you're watching a, a movie or a TV show, what's going to happen? Like... Um, does anybody watch Planet Earth when it came out about 10 years ago? There were like 10 episodes, I think. Pretty, pretty amazing sights of animals. Yeah, no? So there's a new one, uh, Earth, Planet Earth 2. Um, and so far, I think just the one episode's come out, but the others will, will roll out here shortly. I was watching the other day, and oh my goodness, I was really rooting for this little lizard. <laughs> he's, he's getting chased by these snakes, and they get, they get laid they get laid like down in the sand and all the adults are over on the shore. And so the lizard uh, hatches and when it pops up out of the sand, these snakes come after it. And it's got this one chance to get out of there and get to the shore or else it gets eaten. And they showed three of them or four of them get eaten. And I'm watching this last one and they, you know, they put this beautiful music to it, you know, and it's kind of, you know, yeah, the kind of percussion, you know, anything. Oh no, the lizard's gonna die. Then he got away. It was great. You should watch it. I said all that to say this. You know, when you listen to certain music, what's gonna happen? You know whether or not the character is gonna live or die based on the sound of the music. Revelation actually has that in it. It has this, I'll call it uh, Sinai music. Uh, not because, well, you might think, but because it sounds like Mount Sinai. So in chapter 4 and 5, when we first have this throne room vision of God, we hear uh, uh, voices and thunder. Boom, boom, right? It definitely sounds like Exodus and Moses' experience on the mountain. Then at the end of the seven seals, at the end of the seven trumpets, and at the end of the seven bowls, that same soundtrack that same music gets played sound thunder earthquake sound uh, sounds thunder voices earthquake sound thunder earth voices earthquake heavy hail so each time we hear like more 
more of the soundtrack, so to speak, right? But it's just kind of this literary way of tying those sections together, letting you know that this bit goes with that previous bit when we heard that music before. Like Revelation is so sensual. There's so much that we see, we smell, we taste, um, we feel. It's, it's, it might be better performed than it would simply be read um, because it's so sensual. Um, when, I, when I teach uh, Revelation at the college, I, I use a little handout. Uh, I thought about using it tonight, but I didn't want <coughs> to take up all of our time. But I, I give a little section, and I'll just, I'll just read a bit of it to you. At the end of the, each of the seven messages, there's a promise of one who conquers. If you conquer, then you'll receive a prize. However, there are no instructions about how to conquer. Uh, for example, in chapter 3, verse 5, you are promised to receive a white robe if you conquer. If John had been writing a Choose Your Own Adventure, then the promise to the conqueror would have been followed by a set of questions. If you want to know how to conquer, turn to Revelation 12, verse 11. That was our lesson from last week. By the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, loving their lives, not even to death. Or, if you want to know more about your reward, turn to Revelation 6, 9 through 11, which is, which is a story of um, the kind of martyrs uh, crying out uh, underneath the altar. Uh, if you choose to learn how to conquer, then you discover in Revelation 12, 11, that conquering is only possible through the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and not loving their life so much as to shrink from death. You might wonder whether the final part of this verse is an exaggeration. Do you really have to be willing to die, or is this simply a hyperbole for boldness of witness? If you had chosen the second option and turned to Revelation 6, 9 through 11, you would have discovered that the possibility of your death was not an overstatement. Uh, Revelation 6, 9 through 11 says this, When they opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, how holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I'm guessing that your own death was not exactly what you first thought when you were, when you were told that you would be getting a reward for conquering. At the first uh, at this point, you are offered a new selection of options. If you're very scared and you would like to know how the story ends, turn to chapter 7, verse 14. Or if you're feeling brave and you'd like to see what role you will play before the end, turn to Revelation 19:14. In the first scenario, you learn that apparently the final number of the witnesses is eventually complete and is actually an innumerable multitude. Although the whole group is described as having survived the great tribulation, they have not washed their robes and made them white in their own blood, but rather in the blood of the Lamb. If you had been feeling brave, then you would have discovered in Revelation 19.14 that white robes are the standard uniform for those who are in the army of heaven, and you have been drafted for the final eschatological battle. So I guess another way of, of, of saying this is, how do we know whether we're reading something as complex as Revelation or whether we're reading something more straightforward like the Gospels or the letters of Paul? Um, what text should be read alongside other text? 
So often in our, our study Bibles, we have cross-references. And they'll say, well, you know, you're reading this passage. Look up this passage. It's kind of similar. But then who put that in there, right? Who got to say, what's the other passage that you should be using to compare to this passage? Um, in a way, that's, that's what I'm talking about. How, how do we interpret? How do we understand? So we'll be taking a break. A uh, little side note here. We'll be taking a break um, from our Wednesday nights uh, for a while, um, kind of up, up until like the Easter time. But just after Easter, we'll relaunch. And um, I'm kind of debating now whether to kind of go back to Mark and do kind of a Mark 9 through 16 because we did a Mark 1 through 8. And I've also thought about doing something on Bible study, um, like not actually just studying a passage uh, or a section of the Bible, but doing like a series of lessons on how to study the Bible. Um, so we, we, can, we can talk about that, and I might even send out a little poll or survey to see who wants what. So we've had two, we've had two um, ways in which I think Choose Your Own Adventure and Revelation can be similar. One, it's a second point of view. I think Revelation can be read, ought to be read, like it's written for us, that we should read it as participants and not just spectators. And then two is this idea of a non-linear reading experience. Um, <coughs> that is, you can't, if you, you can't just start at the beginning and read straight to the end and think it's told a story chronologically. Um, there's just too many flashbacks. There's too many foreshadows uh, that take place, and we need to be kind of keen on that. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 is one of the biggest flashbacks. I mean, it goes all the way back to, um, well, creation. There's a serpent and a woman, and they're in conflict, and the serpent wants to kill the child of the woman, except the child of the woman, who's going to rule the world with a rod of iron, is taken up into heaven. It's like we get, like, the whole history of salvation in, you know, a few verses. Our third Third category, though, moving forward, is this idea of um, of looping. Um, in choose your own adventure stories, sometimes you get kind of stuck in a loop, and you get this repetition. Um, and sometimes, when you get stuck, you either have to stop reading because it keeps sending you back to the same page, or you have to back up far enough to kind of get on a different path and go somewhere else. That doesn't exactly happen, of course, when we read Revelation. But there is a lot, and people have noticed this um, for centuries, actually. Like the very first commentary of Revelation was written by a guy named Victorinus, and he makes this point, that Revelation is full of recapitulation. Um, the best example is probably the, the series of seven. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are not so much consecutive judgments, as retellings of the same judgment. So, I mean, they start small at one, they build up huge until six, and then seven is kind of ultimate. And so, in each, in each case, you start one, it starts slow, it builds, six becomes this kind of big thing, but then seven is kind of this ultimate thing. Um, so much so that the... Uh, trumpets and the bowls are almost identical. Like, it's a judgment on the sun. It's a judgment on the sky. It's a judgment on the sea. It's a judgment on the rivers. Like, the, it's the same order. And at, at one point, it's like a quarter 
of the earth is being harmed. And another point, it's like a half. And then there's another kind of a reference to a third series of seven, which would have included four total, but a third one in between what we know as two and three, called Seven Thunders. Seven Thunders, John hears when he sees the angel in chapter 10, but the angel says, oh, don't worry about writing that down. We got time for that. And, and then the last seven is the um, bowl. So it looks as though John experiences seals, trumpets, thunders, bowls, which makes more sense in the numerology of, of Revelation because he likes the, you know, four is kind of the number of the earth and he likes to use for this, for that, for the other. But it didn't, but it didn't make sense uh, otherwise. And so you end up getting a reference to it, but you don't actually hear them. Um, but the first one, a, a quarter of things are destroyed. The second, a half of things are destroyed. If we're, if we're following it, it would have been three quarters. And the last one, the um, bowls, it is a whole. Everything gets destroyed. I mean, it's just like, like really apocalyptic kind of disaster. The, um, I kind of had gotten ahead of myself, but that, that repetitive soundtrack um, is another way in which you get kind of this looping that takes place. Um, so not only do the series of judgments don't seem to be consecutive, but rather retellings um, in terms of their theme and in terms of their increasing level of intensity and the fact that they all basically end the same spot. But then, but even the music fits. Um, so in chapter four, verse five, just to get it right this time, there's flashes of lightning, voices and thunders. That's, that's the first time we hear the, the, the soundtrack, so to speak. In chapter 8, verse 5, which is the end of the seals, there's thunders, voices, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In eleven nineteen, which is the end of the trumpets, there's flashes of lightning, voices, thunders, an earthquake, and great hail. And then the big finale at the end of 16, where the final, um, <laughs> the final trumpet just was this voice from heaven saying... The end. Like literally, like, you know, the old movies used to do that? Like they would say the end and then it would kind of just fade to black and you'd hear the music and the, and the credits would roll. Um, and it's 16, 18 through 21. It says this, flashes of lightning, voices, thunders, and there was a great earthquake. Such was not since, uh, since the, there were men upon the earth. So great an earthquake, so mighty and great hail and every stone about the weight of the talent about the weight of a talent. So, the, um, yeah, it's just that, that kind of ongoing version of the, of the song that just kind of plays and plays and plays and rolls out there. If I were more musical, this, this lesson would be great. <laughs> All right. There's another, there's another idea of um, the Choose Your Own Adventure that I think... Um, might help us get an idea of Revelation. And that's this idea of multiple paths. Um, so it's quite obvious in a choose your own adventure that you're making choices and you're going on this path or you're going on that path. You're either going back to the library to do research or you're getting on the plane to go to Egypt or something, right? So Revelation, again, doesn't have that exactly, but what you think you're reading will affect what you see when you read. So that is... <clears throat> if you think what you're reading in Revelation is, is, is completely about the future, then how you read those events 
um, will be affected by your presupposition that this is still about the future. Not just the future for John when he wrote it, but the future for us when we're reading it. So chapter 1, verse 19, uh, this is part of the original commissioning, Jesus says to John, I want you to write um, what, what you see, what is, and what is to come. Well, some people have taken that as like paradigmatic for the book. What you see is chapter 1, that's his vision of the risen Christ. What is, is chapters 2 and 3, um, which is his messages to the churches. And what is to come is 4 through 22. Well, if that's the path you're on, then anything after 4 is a ultimate eschatological view. That is, it's not just the future for John, it's also the future for us. Nothing after Revelation 4 has happened yet. Um, that's one path to take, right? But if you take, if you take another kind of uh, look um, at, the, at the pattern, and there's multiple ones you can look at, um, like I, I wrote, um, I've actually argued against myself a couple of times on the structure of Revelation. Um, I, I've argued that the, the repetitive phrase, I was in the spirit, because John uses it four times, introduces four major sections of the book. He uses it two times at the beginning and two times at the end. The two times at the beginning introduces the um, seven messages and then the scroll, the lamb and the scroll, which takes up a long section. And then it ends with he was in the spirit twice. He says, I was in the spirit. And um, it's the two final visions of the um, harlot who morphs into the city of Babylon and the bride who morphs into the city of Jerusalem. Um, so that's uh, one possibility. I've actually come to um, think that, well, that's part of what's going on. I, I think something even more um, intricate might be taking place. So I still think John's four references to being in the spirit are both a spiritual kind of theological claim, but also a literary marker for, the, for us as readers. But I, I don't, I'm not as convinced that it, it, it structures the whole book. Uh, but rather, I see it as kind of a dual introduction and a dual conclusion. So, let's see, I'm trying to think you're reading this way. So you're reading that way? Right. So it would, it would start here. He's in the spirit and he has the vision of Christ and he uh, writes the seven messages. And then he's in the spirit again and he has the vision of the throne room. Uh, chapters 4 and 5, and that's where we find out that there is a scroll and a lamb, and the lamb can open the scroll. Then, here, come up for a second. I need more hands. All right, stick your fingers up like this. All right, that's good. So, everybody see this? This is a very handy uh, teaching technique, is to use Daryl. So, we have our first, thank you very much, by the way. You're welcome. All right, we have the first two references in the Spirit. Then there is the um, seven um, trumpets, which correspond to the seven bowls, like exactly. If you, sh you should read chapters 8 and 9 and then flip over to chapter 16 and see just how similar they are. That's the whole recapitulation. All right. And then on the inside of those, though, there's this reference to the two witnesses, and then there's a reference to the two beasts, 
And then on the inside of that, which would be Daryl's face here, we have the, we have the heart of the story. <laughs> this is the weirdest lesson I've taught in a while. We have the heart of the story, which is the story of the woman clothed in the sun and the dragon. Right? And so what, what's happened is we, we've created this kind of concave structure. Right? Two references to being in the spirit at the beginning, two at the end, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, the two witnesses, the two beasts. And then right at the heart, thank you very much, right at the heart, we get this message that we looked at last week. That is, there is, there is an adversary, the dragon, Satan, the one they call the devil. There's not a lot of ambiguity there, friends. And there is a way to overcome the blood of the lamb, the word of the testimony, loving their lives not even unto death. And on either side of that, we have the church, the witnesses, right? They're going to prophetically bear witness to Jesus. And we have the, the anti-church, right? The beasts of the sea and the beasts of the land that are going to serve the dragon, not serve the lamb, right? And then flowing away from that, that story then is this idea that judgment comes on the earth. Well, who does it affect? Well, it affects everybody who lives on the earth. That's what it affects, right? When it rains, it hits all of us. Um, and I'm not quite sure if that idea that it rains on the just and the unjust. Uh, when I was a kid, I always thought that meant that we didn't want it to rain because we wanted to go outside and play. But it rained on us uh, whether we were good or bad. And so it was basically raining for the bad kids, but it hit, hurt all of us. Um, only as an adult, and really, only probably just a few years ago, did I realize that rain was a good thing, and that they actually needed the rain to survive. And so the idea of raining on the just and unjust is that the just wanted the rain, but the unjust would get it too. <laughs> it's kind of funny, isn't it? Uh, thoughts of a kid. But in any case, if you think of Revelation completely futuristically, then you're, you're probably not... That's one path to take, right? You're, you're not going to appreciate the kind of the heart of the gospel and all that, that the church is this spiritually anointed witnesses that prophetically minister in the world, or that today, this day, we have the opportunity to resist beastly ways of living in the world. Like when we care for our brothers and sisters, when we care for our neighbors, when we care for the people at work or school that we don't like, uh, when we care for people that we might identify as our enemies, then we're, we're behaving like a sacrificial lamb, not like a beast. For tomorrow is not promised to us. The question is today, how will we live? And I think uh, another path, another understanding of the structure might lead us to believe that at the very heart of this book is, is the very heart of the gospel. All right, one, one last uh, area, and this is one that in some ways is the best fit for my analogy. Choose Your Own Adventure had multiple endings. Like some of them had as many as 40 different endings, uh, which is one of the reasons that made the, the books fun to read. Because um, you never quite knew what was going to happen and where you were going to end and, and those sorts of things. Revelation, I think, also has multiple endings, but not, not 40. I think it primarily has two, has two endings. Um, another analogy could be used. 
Remember when DVDs first came out, there were like the bonus features? And in the bonus features, sometimes they had like alternative endings and outtakes and director's cut commentary and this sort of things. So, so there was an ending that got shot and that's the one we saw in the cinema. But then there were other endings that didn't get used and you got to watch them on the DVD. Um, just a quick side note. All due respect to Peter Jackson and the Lord of the Rings, but that last one, Return of the King, they should have used about half of those endings for the director's cut because it kept fading to black and coming back and fading to black and coming back. And they didn't know how to end that thing, but that's just a completely a side note. Uh, just in case you haven't realized, I often teach in a, like a stream of consciousness <laughs> that does not necessarily follow in any particular order. It just invites you to kind of come on the boat with me. <laughs> and just, ah, da, da, da. A lot for the right. Yes, I, I really enjoyed that. So the, the game board, uh, the game board, the, the game clue, um, they made a film about it, but then they actually made different endings. So as you showed up at the cinema, in one of them, it was Colonel Mustard that did it. But in another one, it was Mrs. White that did it. And you didn't know which ending you were going to see when you showed up. That's pretty clever. So here are the two endings. I think there's two endings in Revelation. So um, chapters uh, 17 uh, through 19, well, 17 and 18, and then um, 19 through 22, offer two parallel endings. And again, if you're reading straight through, you just kind of read both of them. But as a participatory reader, depending on how you've identified with the text, these are actually alternative paths and alternative endings that they lead you to. One of them is, and they both start with these same phrases. I was going to, they both start with the same phrase and they both end with the same phrase, which is nice because it, it, it uh, fits into my theory here that these are parallel stories. So in chapter 17, verse 1, and in chapter 29, excuse me, 29, chapter 21, verse 9, we have these parallel introductions. The first one says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, and it spoke with me, saying, Come, and I will show you. And then, whatever, four chapters later, it has exactly the same words. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, and it spoke with me, saying, Come, and I will show you. So parallel beginnings perfectly. They also have parallel endings. The first one ends saying this in chapter 19, verse 10. I fell down before his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of you and your brothers. Worship God. And then in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of you and your brothers. Worship God. I think I heard that before. That's how that last ending ended. I'd heard the beginnings before and I heard the endings before, right? So what, what's going on? So not only do they have parallel beginnings and parallel endings, but our, our, two, um, our two endings both have dual imagery of a woman and uh, a city. And it both starts with the woman and kind of morphs into the city. Uh, both of them do. So when I say morphs, Symbols in visionary apocalyptic text and prophecy as well work like, um, they, well, they work like your dreams. 
mean, you've dreamed before that you're in one place and all of a sudden you're in another place. That can happen in your dreams, right? That can't happen in real life. Like you can't be here one second and the next second be sitting on top of your car in the rain. But that can't happen in your dreams. Like crazy things can happen in dreams. Crazier for some than others. We don't have to share our craziest dreams, but we all understand that the laws of physics don't apply to dreams. And the laws of physics don't apply to symbolism. So the first one, uh, he sees this harlot. And she's riding this beast. But then, after that story goes, that kind of morphs, and it's this uh, city, this Babylon, this kind of perfect example of the ungodly city. And the last one, he starts again with a woman, except it's not a harlot, it's a bride. But the bride almost immediately morphs into this city of the New Jerusalem. Um, a number of years ago, I had a student produce a, uh, a photo book uh, interpreting the book of Revelation. So it was, it was, it was nicely bound. It had the, the incomplete text in it, but then it had these photographs that she had taken to kind of interpret the, the symbols uh, in it. It was a really fine piece of work. Um, uh, what she did to interpret these kind of parallel endings, she had one of her, uh, she had a roommate kind of dress up a bit like a floozy um, as a harlot, right? And um, she was holding a mirror, um, but in the mirror, instead of reflecting, it looked, I mean, from the angle, it looked like it should have reflected her face, but instead of reflecting her face, it was an ancient uh, depiction of Babylon, uh, in the reflection. And then um, she had, I think it was actually a different roommate, which is unfortunate because it would have been nice that she could use the, the same girl since she had to be the, you know, and I still to this day when I think of that a student, I think of Whore Babylon. Um, I know, <laughs> it's pretty tough. She had a different student dress up uh, in, a, in a bride's gown, right? And she's standing in, in front of a full link mirror but instead of seeing her reflection, she superimposed this ancient uh, icon of the New Jerusalem descending, uh, which I thought was a beautiful kind of pictorial way to, to kind of represent this. So what does these alternative endings mean for us as readers of the book of Revelation? It means this. As you're reading through Revelation, you're kind of being posed with two alternative stories. You can, you can kind of follow the beast. Who can resist the beast? You know, who can withstand the beast? Or you can follow the lamb. You can, you can be, you know, more concerned about yourself and about your well-being and about your acceptance in your, you know, your extended communities or what have you. Or you can kind of devote your life to the lamb and, and the sacrifice then that, that that calls for. Whichever way you behave then designates you as either being unfaithful, like a harlot, or faithful, like a bride. It means that you are a citizen of Babylon or you're a citizen of Jerusalem. 
these are kind of eschatological, these are like final destination places, but they're also present realities. That is, if you live a beastly life, if, if, you, re, if you rely on the system and, or you're on yourself, if, you're, if you try to just get ahead, uh, climb the ladder, as we did uh, uh, a couple Sundays ago, as opposed to the way of the cross, if you're more concerned about your 401k than about whether or not the uh, other people um, at your job or um, in the RV park know Jesus, maybe we are already committed to the beast. This is what I believe. I think our ultimate citizenship, though it's not yet experienced, is already being determined in our lives. What makes us fit for those destinations is the lives that we live. This is, this is not just some future danger of a world leader who's going to come and tattoo people or cut off their heads. It's a clear and present opportunity today. So you might live in Lakeland or Lakeland and North Carolina or Lakeland and uh, Chattanooga or Lakeland and, Greg, where else do you live? Pennsylvania or Lakeland and Zambia or just Lakeland <laughs> or Lakeland and Virginia, I don't know. Bartow and Virginia. Virginia, okay, close enough. Sorry. But I'll say this, in another uh, real way, and I really mean that, in a real way, you're not just a citizen of the United States. You are a citizen of the New Jerusalem. If you follow the Lamb, if you believe in Jesus, if Jesus is your Savior, if He's your Lord, if you profess your faith, if you're a follower of God, then ultimately you are a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. And that is your final destination. And in a way, while you might not yet be living there, you are already a citizen of there. So Craig, your driver's license is Pennsylvania or Florida? Pennsylvania. So even though you're living here, you are legally a citizen of Pennsylvania. And I say all of us, even though we're living here, are spiritually citizens of the New Jerusalem. Unless, of course, we want to forsake God and be unfaithful and then suffer the judgment of what happens to those folks. They get eaten by the beast and they suffer through the destruction of Babylon. These are alternative endings not to be experienced by everyone based on how, how you've responded between one, chapters 1 and 16, then, you, then chapters 17 through 22, don't offer us something that everybody experiences, but offers us op options. It's quintessential Hebrew prophecy. Repent, and A happens. Don't repent, and B happens. Someone who lives their entire life 
being the best person they can be and, and give their life to God. And then the person who doesn't, and later in life. Yeah, it's a great question. <coughs> so, uh, two answers. On the one hand, I believe that the way of Jesus Christ is the best way to be human. Right? It's the best way to live. It will be the best you you can be. And it will not just be better for others, but it will be better for you. And, and it is what you were made for, right? So delay is of, of no uh, value. However, Jesus does t- tell a parable about those who uh, got agreed to, uh, for a payment for the day and had worked all day. And then somebody who came at the end of the day and only worked a little bit and got the same payment that everybody else did. And they're like, what? That's not fair. Which I don't necessarily think that plays out individually. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. I think what he was talking about was um, the relationship between Jews and non-Jews and whether or not the Messiah was just here for the Jews or here for the whole world. So the Jews were kind of the ones who'd been there, you know, following God all this time. And the Gentiles were kind of the Johnny-come-latelys, but yet they were going to get to be in the kingdom too. I mean, is that fair? And Jesus is like, yeah. Uh, it's not about fair. It's about trying to get everybody in the kingdom. So I think that's really what that parable is about. That's his primary point. But I think as a, as a secondary, uh, you know, while it, while, it, while it does play certainly true for Jews and then Gentiles, you know, first the Jew, then the Greek, as, as Paul would say, or first the 144,000 and then the great multitude, as John would say, um, I think it, there, there is an a analogous reality for the individual, right? It doesn't matter so much when you start, um, but that you start. Having worked in a hospital situation for a while, uh, deathbed confessions, as we called them, um, uh, DBCs, how many DBCs you get? I got two today, man. No, just kidding. It's like trading cards or something. Hospital chaplain work. Bad jokes. I apologize. Um, uh, DBCs uh, don't, don't really happen ever. Uh, people pretty much die the way they live. That's my experience of having been a hospital chaplain. Um, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get a lot of people in the deathbed behaving differently than they had previously in their life. We are creatures of habit. We, we make ourselves fit for the lives that we live by habitually living certain ways and being formed into it. But God can change you and your heart at any age. Sure. Yeah. There's not, I mean, um, there, there's, there's not an age limit. You don't, you don't time out. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, other questions or comments? I'll say this in closing. Uh, Choose your own adventure novels and literature like Revelation share in common a lot of themes. Adventure, travel, mystery, world culture, ancient civilizations, scary creatures, and outer space. That's in Choose Your Own Adventures, and all of that's also in Revelation. I could give you an example of each of those, but I don't want to. 
Revelation contains many of these same themes. John makes several references to mysteries in Revelation, one being Babylon, a civilization that was ancient even in John's day. John also travels to a high mountain carried by an angel who says in the New Jerusalem, descending from outer space. As for the scary creatures, you have your pick from either the good guy, a seven-eyed, seven-horned, formerly slain lamb, or the bad guys, the red dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land. Lastly, implicit references to Rome, the primary world culture of the era, fill every section of Revelation. Identifying the similarities between Choose Your Own Adventure and Revelation hopefully helps us penetrate this otherwise cryptic book and helps us appreciate in ways we previously might not have been able to the way this literature kind of comes to us. Not, not as a book with seven seals, uh, but a book that's been opened by the Lamb. That's my attempt at poetry. I was hoping that sounded a little like Phil Grimes. He says stuff like that. It sounds real good to me. All right. Um, hey, thanks, everybody, for coming out. Hopefully you enjoyed this seven-week series. Uh, we are taking a little bit of a break. Um, it's a funny thing to, to give up for Lent, Bible study. <laughs> um, next Wednesday night, though, um, there will be not a service, but a come-and-go um, prayer time to receive the imposition of ashes for Ash Wednesday as we do start the Lenten season. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about the new um, Sunday morning series, Away in the Wilderness, which is our uh, Lent. I'm trying to see. So if that's um, uh, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, which we are now, then the the Jesus kind of looking down, that's Lent, and then Easter and Pentecost, which kind of tell the church calendar uh, around the sides, drawn by our own very Josh Bump Galetta, and then framed by Ted Smith, colored by Kevin O'Brien, curated by Carol Arnaga. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, don't forget about the uh, parking lot. All right, take, takes all of us. And uh, we'll be giving you some updates there. And that's it. So you want us to come with our shovels or what? Well, oh, nope, nope, we're, we're, we're get, taking up money. We're going to have a professional do it so it can last a long time. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah, Ash Wednesday. Yeah, so there's, there's something, I think, at lunch... We'll be open for a few hours, and there'll be people in here to impose the ashes, I think is how it's said. Um, and then there's something in the evening. Uh, but it's just, it's a, there's, there'll be, um, there's like a 10-minute um, loop on the screen of scriptures to read and to reflect on. And then there's the actual getting the ash on your forehead. And that's about it. Um, and then no more Wednesday night until after Easter. All right, God bless.